0: If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 15. As we continue in the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he gives us here the words of our Lord Jesus. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Now we have in these verses one of the great metaphors, that Jesus uses as recorded in the gospel of John. So often what we find is that Jesus speaks to us of spiritual realities in physical terms. Here he says, I'm the vine. Other places we find our Lord proclaiming that he is the the bread of life or that he is the door or that he is the good shepherd. And of course, what he means in using those figures of speech is not that he is a a loaf of physical bread or a wooden door with boards or that he found employment on a hillside tending sheep, but Rather, what he means is that he fills all of these roles in a spiritual sense. Just as physical bread sustains physical life, so Jesus sustains spiritual life. Just as a physical door is the means by which one enters into something, so Jesus is the door to salvation. As he says in John ten nine. if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Just as a good shepherd is concerned about the animals entrusted to his care, so Jesus is concerned about all who are entrusted to his care, so much so that he laid down his life for the sheep. And so this is certainly within Jesus' normal patterns of speaking when we see him here in John 15 saying, I am the vine. This is an image of life. This is an image of fruitfulness. And this is something that Jesus spoke to his disciples for their joy so that his joy might be in them and that their joy might be complete. And so let's consider what is going on here as Jesus uses this this image of a vine. Now, certainly this is an agricultural metaphor, but it is an agricultural metaphor that has deep roots in the Old Testament. Many times the nation of Israel is represented as a vine. That's why our brother Tom read for us from Isaiah chapter 5 this morning. That's why we sang Psalm 80 this morning. I know the tune was a little bit tricky, but that's why we sang Psalm 80 this morning is because it uses this this imagery of a vine to speak of the nation of Israel. We're told in Psalm 80, you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadows and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. But yet, so often what we find in the Old Testament as we have this this imagery about the nation of Israel being the vine, is the nation's failure to live up to what God required of it. That was the case in Isaiah chapter 5. That was the case in Psalm 80 as well. That's why Psalm 80 is a prayer for God to revive the nation. There's this common refrain that's used in Psalm 80 with slight variations, but it shows up three times. O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we'll be saved. Through Jeremiah, the Lord expressed it this way, Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Jeremiah 2.21. So this, the nation was the, the vine of the Old Testament, yet they had miserably failed to live up to it. But then Christ, our Lord, comes on to the scene. And as it were, his life recapitulates Israel, recapitulates the life of Israel. Through Isaiah, the Lord had spoken of Christ and refers to him as Israel in one of the servant songs, Isaiah 49, 3, he says, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. And so so Christ is, is identified as Israel. And so his life, as it were, recapitulates all that Israel was supposed to be. And so in Exodus 422, the Lord identified the nation of Israel as his firstborn son, and what Israel was figuratively. Jesus Christ is literally, as the true Son of God. And this is why you can find things in the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew quotes Hosea when Jesus, with his family, comes up out of Egypt. And Matthew, without blinking, can quote Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Originally in Hosea 11, it's talking about the, the nation of Israel coming up out of Egypt into the Promised Land. They were the Son of God coming up out of Egypt. Matthew sees that as a type pointing ahead to Jesus Christ and therefore, without blinking, can quote Hosea 11.1 and say this was fulfilled when Jesus came up after the death of Herod. Just as the nation of Israel miserably failed during their 40 years in the wilderness, Christ spent 40 days in the wilderness and emerged victorious over the temptations of the evil one. Christ fulfilled the law at every point. And so Israel was a, was a type pointing ahead to the great reality which was to come. And so when Christ says, I am the true vine, this is not a completely random metaphor that he's using to conveniently teach us something about how we ought to relate to him. It certainly does that. It certainly is a convenient agricultural metaphor. But again, this is a metaphor that is laden with Old Testament significance. And announcing that he is the true vine, he's claiming that he is the true Israel. He is all that they should have been and more. And so, with that established, then what is Christ teaching us about our relationship to him by means of the metaphor? Well, let's, let's look to the text. And first of all, let's consider the identities of all parties concerned. We find the, the clearest statements of that in verse 1 and verse 5. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. And then verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, apart from me you can do nothing. And so Christ is the vine, not only the vine, he is the true vine, the Father is the vine dresser. And those who are referred to here as branches are both those who are truly united to Christ and also those who simply claim to be united to Christ but are not really united to it. Now this might strike us as odd at first that even false and temporary disciples are referred to here as branches, but this will become clearer as we consider the various aspects of the passage that is before us. So the work of the Father as the vine dresser and the two types of branches are described for us there in verse 2. Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. As the vine dresser, the Father takes away those branches that bear no fruit. And he prunes those that do bear fruit. Now, let's consider each of these two actions in turn. First, the Father takes away these branches in Christ that do not bear fruit. Now, you might well wonder, how is there any such thing as a branch in Christ that does not bear fruit. How is there any such thing as that reality that Jesus describes in verse six by saying, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a withered branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. What's this all about? Well, the New Testament certainly does teach the doctrine that we call the perseverance of the saints. The blessed truth of Philippians 1, 6 that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus explicitly says, John ten twenty seven and 28, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. These things are certainly true. But the Scriptures also teach that they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Romans 9, 6, that... There are many who fall away, that there are those who, who hear the word and receive it with great joy, but at the end of the day show that they are only temporary and that they have no firm root in themselves. This is Jesus' teaching, the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 20, and 21. Jesus says that on the last day there will be many who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, but yet they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And these were people who evidently supposed themselves to have been his followers. They supposed that they were his followers on account of the great works that they had done. They said, Lord, didn't we, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do these great miracles in your name? But Jesus says that he will say to them that he never knew them. They practice lawlessness and so they will be sent away to judgment. Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. It is the sad reality of those who profess Christ but have not actually been born again. Their connection to Christ is shallow, simply external, and therefore only temporary. John described such people in this way in uh, 1 John 2.19, when he said, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. And Jesus describes such people here in John 15 by saying that they do not Produce fruit, that they do not abide in him. And the two are closely connected. They go hand in hand. If you don't abide in Christ, you won't produce fruit. And the proof that you are not abiding in Christ is that there is no fruit, because that vital and life giving connection will necessarily manifest itself in fruit. And the consequence is that if you don't abide in Christ and produce fruit, then you are treated as a non believer. Got off and thrown away for judgment because, in fact, that is what such a one actually is, a non-believer. They are turned over to the judgment that awaits all unbelievers, thrown into the fire and burned. The judgment described there in verse 2 and verse 6 is specifically, as Jesus' words, it pointed toward those who have pretended to be believers, who appeared to be believers. Unbelievers who make no profession certainly will be judged, gathered up and thrown into the fire. But they will not, as it were, be cut off from Christ as unfruitful branches because they had never made any profession of being in Christ, never made any claim of being a Christian. And so as the vine dresser, the Father throws away those branches that don't abide and that that bear no fruit. But the Father also performs a role in the lives of those who do bear fruit. The second part of verse 2 tells us that every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it will... Bear more fruit. This second half of verse 2 points out a couple of things to us. The first thing that we must observe is that bearing fruit is something that admits of degrees. Some bear fruit, some bear more fruit. Obviously, as Christians, our goal should be to bear more fruit, to bear much fruit, so that the Father is glorified. But we should not draw the false conclusion that the one who bears few fruits is the same as the one who bears no fruit. A man may be a weak Christian, and yet a true Christian. The second thing that we observe here in the second half of verse 2 is that the Father is at work in the lives of those who bear fruit so that they may bear more fruit. He prunes, or it could also be translated as cleans, every branch that bears fruit so that it may bear even more fruit. Pruning means that you cut off something that shouldn't be there so that it will be a better plant in the end. Now, having grown up on a nursery, I've, I've trimmed some plants and trees in my time. Most of my experience has been with ornamental plants as opposed to uh, fruit-bearing plants. Ornamental plants are trimmed so that they might look better. Fruit-producing plants are pruned so that they will bear more fruit. Now, a few years ago, uh, Ruby and I planted a plum tree in our yard and it hasn't been producing much fruit, and this year, was, this year was pretty bad, the big zero. And so our, uh, our plan is is to try, to try to do some reading, how our, how our plum trees supposed to be pruned, and then to, to prune it so as to uh, try to help it into producing some fruit. We need to cut some branches in hopes that this tree will become fruitful. And this, Jesus says, is what God the Father is doing in the lives of, Of true believers. It's in the process of cutting off what shouldn't be there so that more fruit might be produced. Now, I have to admit, in all of the trees and bushes that I've trimmed, I've never had a tree or a bush talk back to me after I trimmed it. But can't you imagine someone standing there with shears and trimming a plant and the, the tree yelping a little bit, ouch, that, that hurt, right? This was, this was a part of me and you chopped it off. And it's much the same when we're pruned by God. A lot of times it really hurts when God cuts off the dead wood and the growth that shouldn't be there. But he does it for our good so that we may be more fruitful and more faithful in his kingdom. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews is getting at when he says that all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Right? Discipline for the purpose of yielding the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's Hebrews 12, 11. And in connection with what Jesus says about the Father's work in, in pruning or cleaning Notice there in verse 3 what Jesus says about the current state of the disciples. He's using there the the noun form of the verb that he had used in verse 2, that verb that could be translated prunes or cleans. He uses the the noun form of that there in verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now this doesn't mean that they were already pruned perfectly or that they would never need to be pruned again, but nevertheless it does mean that the initial work had been done. Compared to the world, they were clean. They were incorporated into Christ. They had received His Word and believed it in faith. They had been born again of that imperishable seed, which is the living and enduring Word of God. And they were abiding in Christ. The idea that Jesus is speaking here in verse 3 seems somewhat similar to what we saw a few weeks ago back in chapter 13, where in chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus had said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Now there in, in John 13, of course, Jesus had been washing the disciples' feet, and he was saying to them that, that they only needed to, to wash their feet, right? Because Peter, Peter said, well, Lord, if I need to be washed by you, wash not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus said, Jesus said no, you've, you've already, you all, already are clean. You've already had your bath. You just need your feet to be washed. And so, uh, there as here, the the idea seems to be that the initial change, the the main cleansing had occurred. But nevertheless, just as in John 13, the feet still need to be washed, so here in John 15, there still needs to be pruning that is applied to the people of God. Nevertheless, despite having been told in verse 3 that they are clean, they are commanded by Christ there in verse 4 to abide in Him, that is to remain or to continue in him. And the reason is clear there in verses 4 and 5. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And we see here something that the Christian life is not simply about beginning well, but it's also about continuing well. We saw this in Jesus' words back in John 8.31 where he said, If you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. This is important. Continuing is critical. It's not simply the one who begins to profess faith in Jesus who is saved, but it's the one who continues to profess faith in Jesus. It's not the one who begins in Christ's word, but the one who continues in Christ's words who is saved. Because the one who continues in Christ's word is, in fact, the one who abides. Christ requires that his People bear fruit. And what kind of fruit does he require? What kind of fruit is it that's, that's brought forth from this vital and life-giving union between the branch and the vine? Well, Paul's prayer for the Colossians in Colossians 1.10 was that they would bear fruit in every good work. Our Lord requires the fruit of good works. This is the, the fruit that he's looking for. And so what are good works? Scriptures speak of good works. Even the people of the world sometimes speak of good works. But what are good works? How can we tell? What standard should we use? Is the standard of measure simply the the intention of the doer? I meant to do something good, therefore it's good. Or is it something that's more objective than that? Some people think they are performing good works while other Observers of those works might think the works are evil. So, who gets to decide whether a particular deed is good or bad? In answering that question, I think I would borrow the language of the 1689 Baptist Confession when it said that good works are only such as God has commanded in His holy word and not such uh, or no such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. In other words, good works are the things that are commanded by God and not such things that we make up in our own minds and say, well, this is a good work, I'm going to do it. Good works are those that God has commanded us in his word and for which he has given us a warrant in his word. And a bit of reflection, I think, will simply bear out the truth of this. The standard for what constitutes a good work as being good has to be Scripture. It's not simply what someone happens to think is, is good. If the thing that constitutes a good work is simply the intention or the, the misguided zeal of the doer, then there would be no end to absurdities that could result. What some would consider to be good, others would consider to be evil. And people would justify all manner of wickedness simply if they had a good goal in mind. Would say that the end justifies the means. and Paul it says in Romans 3.8 that those who say, let us do evil that good may come, are justly condemned. And So the standard for what constitutes a good work, a good fruit, has to be the word of God. Otherwise, we would not only become advocates of works that are explicitly evil, but we would stand in danger of burdening ourselves with uh, extra-biblical requirements that are not requirements at all. We would stand in danger of doing what is denounced in Colossians two twenty through 23 where Paul says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as though you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So you may notice here that in our text, Jesus doesn't simply turn the disciples loose and bid them to do whatever they think might be good. He doesn't do that. Instead, he calls them back to his word. You see it there in verse 7. You see it also in verse 10. He calls them to have his word abide in us. Calls us to keep His commandments. This is how we produce good fruit, and when this spiritual fruit is produced, it indicates that that the one who has produced this fruit actually has spiritual life. Producing fruit is a sign of life, and likewise, a lack of spiritual fruit, in other words, the absence, complete absence of This godly fruit indicates a lack of spiritual life. The only way for a branch to bear fruit is for the branch to remain in the vine. The vine is the source of life. And if the branch separates itself from the vine, then fruitlessness and death are the only outcomes. This spring I had cut some vines that had grown up on on some of our trees And, uh, you know, cut them off kind of low. I didn't have to climb all the way up and pull them all down. You just just cut them off off low. And within a day or two, it was was pretty evident that they were dead. The leaves had begun to to wither and it had turned brown. You could tell for sure that it was not alive. It was evident that they were no longer connected with the life-giving sap of that vine. And so Christ calls his people to abide in him, because he is the only one who can give them spiritual life and make them fruitful. And apart from him we can do nothing. And so as we have considered what's here in the text of John 15, let's let's think through some through some specific application for us. And so first of all, be ready for the pruning. Secondly, Good works are for the glory of the Father. And thirdly, Jesus said this for your joy. So first of all, be ready for the pruning. If you're a believer here today, we need to get ready. Because this is what God does. He is, he is the vine dresser. He prunes us so that we may be even more fruitful. He prunes every branch in Christ that does bear fruit. And this is simply God's way of making us productive in the cause of his kingdom. And in doing this, God does what is good and what is best for us, but this doesn't mean that it's always going to be pleasant and easy for us. Much of the time, it can be really tough. Sometimes old habits die hard. And often it is through great trials and difficulties that our rough and sinful edges are knocked off and we're conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Often it is through great trials and difficulties that we're brought to a place where we're more humble, where we're more prayerful, where we're more trusting and dependent upon the Lord. And so be ready for the pruning. Understand what is happening when you undergo great difficulties or trials in your life as a believer. Because... Believe it or not, God is doing a great work in you, a work that is ultimately for his glory. God is making you more fruitful in the process of making you more fruitful by cutting off dead wood, be it arrogance, pride, unfruitful growths that have sprouted. The process of pruning hurts because we like being self-sufficient And it can be sometimes devastating to find out from first-hand experience that instead of being wise and righteous and having all of our ducks in a row, that sometimes we can actually be foolish, very sinful, and sometimes our hearts are internally a mess. God's pruning reveals these things to us, and where there's where there are sins involved causes us to return and trust him and sometimes there's there may not be a particular sin that is that is brought to our attention by the trial but nevertheless it's an impetus for us to trust and rest more in the lord and the more we are trusting and resting in the lord then surely the the more good fruit will will come forth from our abiding with christ and secondly recognize that your good works glorify the Father. Now obviously God is all glorious in Himself. Stephen spoke truly in Acts 7 2 when he called God the God of glory. And therefore, being all glorious and all sufficient in himself, God stands in need of nothing from you or me. He doesn't doesn't need me, doesn't need you. Paul told the Athenians that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything else since he himself gives life and breath to all things. Acts 17, 25. The fact that many rebel against him and blaspheme his name does not make God's essential glory any less than it already is. Far from detracting from the glory of God, the wrath of man praises God, as we find in Psalm 76, 10. But nevertheless, the scriptures teach us That God is glorified when His creatures see and recognize and acknowledge Him as glorious. And it is by good works, the good works of His people, that God manifests His glory to the people of this world and is therefore glorified by them. This is why we read from Matthew chapter 5 this morning where Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Similarly, Peter speaks, First Peter 2.12, when he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So God is glorified by good works, glorified by these fruits that his people bring forth. Now, how, how is this? Well, ultimately, it's because he is the one who equips us, and strengthens us to bear the fruit. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we are dead in sins. Apart from Christ, we we would be thrown away to be burnt up and consumed. But when we abide in Christ, the situation is very different indeed. When we abide in Christ and his words abide in us, we are united to the rich and life-giving sap of the vine. It is then that we are filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, as Paul prayed in Philippians one eleven, And the only reason this can be is because, as Paul say, would say later to the Philippians, Philippians 2.13, it is because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. The good works ultimately come from God. God is the one who has has worked in us to to will to do them. God is the one who works in us to, to bring these actions forth. They are the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work within us. And so, brothers and sisters, let's do good works and glorify God thereby. Let's love the brotherhood of believers by, figuratively speaking, washing one another's feet. Let's serve one another. Let's do what Paul said in Colossians 3, 12 to 14, where he commanded that we put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So let's do these things, and let's be sure that in doing good to those who are of the household of faith, that we do not neglect to do good to all men all commands that we do both, that as we have opportunity, do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, certainly doing good to to all men, to those of the world, is not to be confused with being liked by all men or being approved by all men or even by doing what all men would want you to do. These are not the same things. We do good to all men by loving them according to the standard of the word of God. We do good to all men as we are able by pointing them to the truth of the gospel. We do good to all men by acts of kindness that are truly kind and are in accordance with the truth of scripture. And so let us then, by the grace of God and by the life that comes to us through Jesus Christ, do these good works. Let's be filled with with good works. And be quick to give all glory and praise to God. So that all will glorify God on account of the good works. And we show ourselves to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, notice that Jesus said these things for your joy. He says this in... uh, uh, He gives us first a a promise about prayer there in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, as we considered a few weeks ago back in chapter 14, we, we need to understand that statements like this are not a blank check, that God will automatically give you absolutely anything that your lips may utter in prayer, but rather it is to be taken in its context as a strong encouragement to pray. If we're abiding in Christ and Christ's words are abiding in us, then we're going to be in the right place, spiritually speaking. This will lead to effectiveness in prayer because the things that we ask for will be in accordance with the will of God. If we're abiding in Christ and His words are truly abiding in us, then the things that are nearest and dearest to our hearts are going to be those things that tend toward the glory of God and our fruitfulness for His glory. And when we're asking for the things that are in accordance with His will, we can be Be sure that we may ask for whatever we wish, and it will be done for us. The more closely we are abiding in Christ, the more closely our desires are going to line up with the will of God. And also take note of what Jesus says there in verse 11, where he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And when Jesus tells us to abide in him and to obey him, Jesus is not only looking out for the Father's glory, Jesus is also looking out for our joy. Jesus is most concerned about the glory of God because obviously that is most important. But Jesus is also looking out for our joy. And these two are not contrary to one another. In fact, the two go together perfectly. There is no greater joy for us as human beings than to live a life of abiding obedience in Jesus Christ, giving praise and glory to the Father through him. Now, of course, this is not the message of the world. The world will tell you that joy is to be found everywhere everywhere else other than abiding in Jesus. The world will tell you that true joy is ultimately to be found in disobeying Jesus. But if you peel the layers back and look below the surface, the truth comes out. If you look at the lives of the rock stars and the athletes and the rich and famous, and you listen to some of their statements and some of their songs, you realize that all is not as it appears on the surface. Instead, the lives that they live apart from Christ are emptiness personified. It is vanity. It has the appearance of something good, but when you reach for it and think that you have it, it has eluded you. It always takes one more of whatever you're after, order to make you happy so you think anyways and you end up chasing a rainbow that is always one step ahead of you and you never catch up to it and isn't that solomon's point in a lot of the book of ecclesiastes pretty miserable way to live vanity of vanity says the preacher right but jesus on the other hand says to us these things i have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full Now, ultimately, the fulfillment of our joy will be when we go to be with Christ forever and enter into the joy of our Master for all of eternity. But He gives us true joy here and now, and this is a joy then that will one day reach its epitome when we go to be with the Lord. But it starts here and now. We need to remember that it is a truly joyful thing to follow the Lord and to walk in His ways. Don't Believe the lies of the world. The world will tell you that they have it good and you have it bad. But David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes his refuge in him, Psalm 34. Those who truly know the Lord know that he is good and that his ways are good and that following Christ and obeying him is the path of joy. It's not always easy, but it's always good. It's always good, even when it's hard. And so, brothers and sisters, let's abide in Christ. Let's bear much fruit and live in this joy that our Lord Jesus gives to us. And let's recognize what a joyful thing it truly is to be united to Christ and to bear good fruit, to do good works for the glory of God. This is a wonderful reality. And if you're here this morning if you, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to recognize here from Jesus's words that you are helpless. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. You can do no good thing if you are apart from Him. Whatever you may do that seems to be good on the surface is is tainted in some way or another. Your attempts to be a good person, apart from Jesus, are actually a rebellion against God if you are apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're doing what appear to be good things, but you're only doing them to make yourself look good, to make yourself feel good. You're doing them for the glory of you, in other words. That's not good, because pride goes before destruction. Your only hope of life is to believe in Christ, to abide in Him, to believe His Word, to trust in Him, that He is the Son of God who came to save sinners by dying for them. And I beg you to turn to Christ today. And if you'd like to know more about this, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know. We would love to tell you more about what it means to believe in Jesus and to abide in Him, and to have His Word abide in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these great and wonderful words of our Lord Jesus. And Father, we ask that, that You would help us, that we would truly abide in Christ that we would obey him that his words would remain in us and we remain in him that we would walk as fruitful and faithful members of Christ fruitful and faithful branches of Christ who is our vine father we pray that you would that you would strengthen us we pray that you would encourage us we thank you for this great reminder that uh, that your ways are joyful that jesus has said these things for our joy. We ask, Lord, that our joy would truly be full in him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.